This week on Policy, Guns and Money's Bigger Picture series, Aspies Anastasia Capetis, Daria Impionbato and Katja Theodorakis explore the nexus of climate change and gender, considering the official International Women's Day theme, Changing Climates, Equality Today for a Sustainable Tomorrow. They discuss the disproportionate gendered impacts of climate change, the agency of women in climate and security narratives, and focus on the intersectional dimensions of the climate movement within different regional contexts. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, your special presenter, Ashley McNeil. Hi there, everyone. My name is Anastasia Capetis. I'm the National Security Editor here at ASPE. Welcome to our special International Women's Day podcast. I'm here with two of my great ASPE colleagues, and I'm just going to get them to introduce themselves. Hi, Anastasia. Thanks for having me today. My name is Daria Mpumbatu, and I'm a researcher at the International Cyber Policy Centre here, focusing on China, social media and human rights. And I'm equally happy to be here. My name is Katya Theodorakis, head of the counterterrorism program at ASPI, and I look at all things related to extremism and radical ideas and terrorism. So today I've got these great women in our studio to talk about the issue of women, climate change and security. And this is following the UN's thematic for International Women's Day this year, which is changing climates, equality today for a sustainable climate. So we're going to try and dig in to people's expertise around two broad questions. One is that you know, we know that women are going to suffer really disproportionately from the effects of climate change, even at the 1.5 degrees that is really baked into our system now. At the same time, women are underrepresented in almost all the systems of power that have real decision-making ability to change that reality for women. So this is the kind of dual dilemma that women face. So in terms of impacts of climate change, on women, one of the statistics that's often thrown around is that around about 80% of people who are displaced or will be displaced by climate change and climate change disasters are women and girls. So that's a, that's a huge disparity of effects there. At the same time, 70% of the world's population living in poverty are women. So just those two statistics kind of bracket why women will suffer from climate change effects so disproportionately. So, Daria, how else will women in particular suffer from the effects of climate change in ways that are slightly different to the way that men might? Well, I think it's widely recognised that there are so many different factors that influence the ways that climate change will impact people. And I guess one of the main ones is gender, but there are so many others. And those go everywhere from race to class, to education, to which country you live in in the world, like whether, you know, there is a huge difference, even uh, whether you live in a democracy or under an authoritarian regime. That is something I would like to talk about more in detail later when we focus more on China. But yeah, so I think it's it's really important to keep in mind all of these different layers when we talk about the impact, but also when we try to think about solutions. 
I think that's such an important point because women in different parts of the world will suffer or be impacted in different ways, again, depending on some of these other factors. And also that climate change is is really not just about increasing in natural disasters or increases in drought or extreme weather events. It is that, but it will have cascading effects on human systems. So everything from water to food to trade to law to governance. And one of the things that we're trying to get our heads around is how all of those things work and how can we try and mitigate some of those effects on human systems. Katya. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you just said um, trying to get our heads around because as, as you just pointed out, sort of this debate on climate change has kind of brought environmentalism into the public debate as a sort of a mainstream topic, whereas before it was maybe more tied to sort of activism or it was, you know, maybe a marginal dinner conversation or it was reserved to certain parts of sort of progressive or green agendas. If you're a member of Greenpeace, then, you know, it would have been your daily bread to talk about this. And we've seen in recent years sort of this, you know, this activism with Greta and the debate around that, highly polarizing, of course. But I think it's interesting in that sense that I think we're going forward with a lot of assumptions. And as in we, I'm talking about sort of the general public and political debate about it. And I think as we're trying to get our heads around the issues and how it actually affects it, I think it's worthwhile looking at also how certain ideas are reproduced and the way we speak about this and how when we speak of women being more vulnerable to climate change, how that might be reproducing sort of biases or blind spots from earlier eras when, for example, the debate first began on women in conflict. I think there was sort of this construction of women that they're victims of terrorism and conflict and they were not really seen as perpetrators as well. And I think that's maybe skewed quite a few sort of the countering violent extremism programs. There was a focus on mothers and wives and sisters being able to help the male who had the agency and who was joining conflict and violent extremist groups. And I wonder whether some of those assumptions, they're also present in the debates on, on climate. So I think that would be an interesting one to unpack. <laughs> I think that's really true. And one of the things that I personally have been frustrated with, at least, is that often the effects of climate change on women and children are posed as human security questions. Mm. Now, in kind of Western security discourses, a lot of uh, human security is seen as softer. It's a, you know demanding a humanitarian rather than a security response. And in a sense, human security is not seen as often, not seen as a national security issue. That's a bit cute sort of, you know, it's that yeah. kind of agenda of, yeah, well, we've got the hardware and we need to talk about that and we need to talk about really important security issues like war. And in war generally, men have the ideas and the agency and when they're, you know, females joining as combatants or as foreign fighters, it's, it becomes this exotic phenomenon or we have this iconography around sort of female resistance fighters, Palestinian resistance fighters or infamous women that, you know, and we kind of essentialize and stereotype them when we turn them into icons, but we're not really seeing it as a natural part of a conflict zone that women have agency. It may be different because obviously our worlds are gender, just like you said, Dara, they're structured by class, race, gender, but it's still seen as sort of an outlier. And I, I feel like we will be falling into the same traps. It's interesting when you think of, say, you know, is an Afghan woman fleeing a particular war situation, whether it be the Taliban or other occupying forces in the last 20 years of Afghanistan's history, keeping that family together in some way, getting them to a refugee camp, is she a victim or is she also a security provider yeah. you know, for her family? 
it's an interesting question to Absolutely. think about. Absolutely. And it seems to be, then we seem to go to these polar opposites sometimes. I think in the way it's framed, like what I pointed to before with the violent extremism, that there's this kind of cycle of it's either victimhood or it's this virtuousness of women that gets highlighted, you know. Women, they're naturally, they're caring more for the environment. Like, maybe, but maybe that's also an ascribed role. Because maybe they have to, if they're the ones having to fetch water, they will notice water scarcity first. But maybe men's voices would not be included, that maybe it affects them in different ways. It becomes sort of this domain of women to talk, you know, the nurturing and the feeding and the, you know, watering the crops. And I think we need to move beyond that. Yeah, so sort of questioning those gender stereotypes whenever we look at this particular question I think is an important one and helps bring out some insights we, we otherwise would have missed. Daria, is there any particular way that you know you see that we could better frame and better shape the discourse around women and power and climate and security? That's a really difficult question. <laughs> I don't know that we really have solid answers to. I tend to think that we see more women in environmental activist movements because women are more used to being outcasted to, you know, outside of policy circles and not having access to power and NGOs and all those sort of things become uh, the place where they can express their thoughts and try to act on it. So I think we need to, yes, change the the narrative around how we describe women in order for things to actually change. And we can, as I said, we can look at the effects of climate change, but we also need to look at the talent pool that women offer and like from lived experiences, but also just from education and like from having access to, you know, other voices and other public areas that you you have to draw from those talents and see them as a resource rather than as a chore almost that we have to listen to women and see what they <laughs> exactly. what they what they have to say about these things it's it's going to yeah. be beneficial for everyone and it's almost essential or no, not almost it is fully essential to empower people with these capabilities and a lot of them are women I couldn't, you know, endorse that point more in the sense that I personally, in terms of framing this, would like to see women seen as really creative agents, even if they don't have parity of representation in in power structures. The act of survival in extreme circumstances that in conflict that's really related to climate or conflict that will be driven by climate change, for example, is a highly creative act. So this is problem-solving in extreme environments at every second, at that level the creativity is is huge. On almost every other level as well, women's creativity in trying to deal with this problem of, of climate and security and the sustainability of human systems and lives is extraordinary. I mean, you're finding them in diplomacy. They're spearheading uh, things like the Green New Deals around the planet as well. There is so much Indigenous activism around climate change and security and management of lands. Also, legal approaches, there's so many women spearheading those, looking at how can citizens hold governments and decision makers to account on climate change. So there is that as well. And then often, again, really amazing communicators, scientific communicators on climate change, 
finally, I noticed there's a lot of women involved in, in trying to turn around global financial institutions uh, to begin to price in the cost of climate change into global markets and to build financial instruments that help you know, channel investment away from you know, climate-destroying industries into those that will help us mitigate climate change and, and adapt to climate change. So on all those levels, women are very much present. But I just wanted to reference just a couple of things. There, even with all of that, there is still a lack of representation that we should acknowledge and, and briefly talk about. Maria Tanyag at a new published an article in The Guardian at the end of last year, and it's a great, great article. It just went through step by step in terms of multilateral institutions where women's representation is still lacking. So just for example, at COP26, 155 of the heads of delegation out of 196 heads of delegation were men. At the same time, the IPCC has a gender working group and they are trying to increase the representation of female climate scientists um, who contribute working papers to the IPCC. In 1990, 10% of those working papers were authored by women. Present day, roughly 30%, which is progress but still nowhere near parity. So there's a lot of work to do there. But I think the working group also said that, you know, gender parity in that regard will be reached in 60 years' time. So it came a little, a little <laughs> bit too late. <laughs> depressing. <laughs> so we don't have that type of frameworks with climate change, unfortunately. We don't have those frames. As you've already outlined, I think both of you, that sometimes that, that representation is much higher at the civil society level. So when groups are excluded from formal political processes, they try and find other avenues of agency to create political space. And so that, that is the case. At the same time, a 2019 study of 91 parliaments across the world found a strong correlation with female representation in parliaments and stronger and more effective action on climate change. So it does seem that it's really important for women to join formal institutions of power as well as be highly involved in civil society. Daria, you look a lot at China. So what is the situation there in terms of women and climate change, either activism or policymaking or involvement in government decision-making? I guess I'll just keep the ball rolling from the civil society talk you just explained, I think it's really important to remember that civil society is not always strong in all contexts and especially in a repressive regime like that of the Chinese Communist Party, that civil society activity is almost disappearing and that includes environmental movements, unfortunately. I think the environmental movement is following on the traces of the women's rights movement and the LGBT movements in China, because even up until 10 years ago, so we're talking pre-Xi Jinping era, there was some space where these groups could act and mobilize people and, you know, with some form of approval from the government, but they could still see some results without receiving too much you know, the hard hand from the government. But under Xi Jinping, any form of community organizing or mobilization has been clamped on and all NGOs have had to either leave the country or rethink the way that they behave or interact with the government and people in China. 
And just briefly on that, often in environmental movements in the past in China, women have been of a relatively high profile in them. And I'm just really thinking about the under the dome, the anti-pollution movement. Yeah, so under the dome was a bit of a, a weird case. So this former journalist, her name is Chai Jing. She published in 2015 this documentary on pollution in cities in China, and it received government endorsement. A lot of officials, uh, it was publicized on official channels in China and had millions of views. It was incredible. In the first four days, it truly went viral and suddenly then it was censored. And so people started wondering what happened. You know, the government is openly working towards those goals. It's trying to solve the pollution problem because it directly impacts everyone living in the country. And it was becoming already a huge problem for the government to, I guess, keep people quiet Mm -hmm. about it. But I think once you see that level of mobilization in the general society, they start to be scared mm-hmm. and they're control freaks at the end of the day. The CCP is a control freak. They can't allow that sort of momentum to grow. So what happened to her? I wouldn't look too much. At, so it was just censored and you, you can't stream it anymore in China. You can't, any comments on it, any reviews of it were completely erased. But I think that documentary has inspired a new generation of of Chinese young leaders. And I think we need to talk about young people at the same time as we talk about women, because especially in the climate movement, they, they really represent such a huge and powerful voice. And in China in particular, I'm thinking about Hawei Ou. She's a, a very young activist who studied her activism in high school in regional China near Guilin. And she became known as the Chinese Greta Thunberg. But I would be a bit hesitant to draw this sort of comparison because we need to admit that despite all the difficulties that someone like Greta Thunberg might have faced, they will never be the same as someone actually facing government oppression in a country like China. Mm. And despite that, a 16-year-old girl still did that, decided to speak out and protest on the street People were criticizing her. She said some old people would stop by and say, tell her that she should learn more about Chinese traditional culture, not this foreign stuff. And by this foreign stuff, they meant climate action. And climate science. And climate science. So, you know, you see these, these massive paradoxes where like China is trying to show itself as this leader on the global stage of, you know, sustainability and renewable energies. But at the same time, they don't allow for space for civil society, women and young people to take part in it because they can rely on science and, you know, professors and engineers and whatnot. But in reality, less than 10% of the staff and researchers professor at the professor level are women. That's a very, very small percentage. So they're really excluded in that case from any form of participation. That's really interesting. I think we have a space for that where we can play a role because, you know, this is not meant with any disrespect to Greta and her activism, but I feel like 
it's been hyped up where the platform's been given to her, but there should be other voices that should be included more. And I think I remember a little while ago, there was a debate about this where, you know, she was given the microphone disproportionately more than other activists from, you know, other countries where their activism is a lot more difficult because they're in an oppressive society or they're come, they overcome incredible hardship to have that voice. Whereas for her, the voice was given quite, it was easier for her to have that voice. And I think that shows something that sort of, you know, we're talking about an intersectional gender lens, how there's all these different layers intersecting. I think it, it's really true in climate as well, because I think it's still in some sense, we say that it should be less of a marginal discourse, but I think in sort of our public spheres, whether they be online or offline, I think we're contributing to that by hyping up a girl from a sort of more privileged background. And I think people have sort of looked into this and gone like, she wouldn't be able to do what she's doing if her parents weren't wealthy. Or she, you know, certain things she's proposing, that it's absolutely her right to do that. But because we're not giving space to other voices who put a different spin on this saying, well, it's nice to say that we shouldn't fly and we should take a train. But that's, you know, you can only do that when you're wealthy or have a lot of time. But then to balance her perspective, to make it more, you know, to complement it with other voices from, I think, the global south, I think that would be the next step. Otherwise, it, we're, we are reproducing sort of these you know, an exceptionalism, I think, that's sort of still present. And I think it's a good reminder, I think, climate on International Women's Day to think about all those intersecting biases. That's a really good example about, you know, the Chinese. And the fact that we call her the Chinese Greta, I mean, why wouldn't we maybe do it the other way around? Yeah. And, and, and I feel like I've just really bashed Greta, I did not mean that. It's just the space that's and the amplification she's received. Where... I'm sure she would agree, to yeah. be honest. Like I don't yeah. I think it's more about the way that the media yeah. hypes these women and like we create these like sort of un very unrealistic ideals around it's like media celebrity status yeah. almost. Yeah. yeah. And and demonization of women in the, in those roles as well. Yeah. Look, and it circles back to some of our discussion about how all of these, these issues are framed. And I think what, for me at least, this underlines is that climate change is going to, you know, metastasize every existing conflict on the earth. It's also going to drive new ones and they're going to be, you know, very different depending on, on where you are. But what it says to me is that women, peace and security has often been a sort of a marginalised agenda you know, in international security discourse again. And in fact, these kinds of approaches need to be brought right to the centre of security discourse. Conflict prevention is going to be key to us societies surviving the effects of climate change. Thomas Friedman recently in the New York Times talked about an Israeli-Palestinian organisation called EcoPeace. Thomas Friedman's analysis pretty much went like this. It's like in the past governments have, have accrued uh, national security brownie points by positioning themselves as sort of strongman defenders against an external enemy. And climate change doesn't work like that, but it would be much more devastating probably than any external actor or external you know, force of conquest could be to a country. So he was basically arguing that in the future, the countries that are going to be the most successful in a security sense, in a sovereignty sense, in a survival sense, are those that prioritise climate resilience you know, on all fronts. So that calls for a paradigm shift in the way that we think about security and who becomes important actors in building that security. I just wanted to briefly mention the work of EcoPeace as being the only example 
actually in the world at the moment that combines peace building with environmentalism. They've just helped negotiate a deal between the UAE, Israel and Jordan, where essentially UAE builds a big solar arrays in Jordan's vast deserts. They export that energy to energy poor Israel. Israel has a massive desalinization sector. It will add to that and pump that water back into bone dry Jordan, creating what EcoPeace themselves call these you know, really positive interdependencies that will help and mitigate conflict in the Middle East in the future. So it's those kinds of examples, those creative examples, that at least I would like to see really become much more mainstream yeah, in our that security debate. Yeah, perfectly sums up sort of what yeah, I think we've been trying to get at, that it's, it shouldn't be this marginal issue and the fact that we still need to have a separate you know, women, peace and security agenda and that it's not seen as an, maybe it is seen by some actors as an integral part that there's, you know, this to me is actually a, you know, an example that points to hope rather than ending on a usually, I guess we usually do on a depressing note because it it shows that it can be part of mentioning where you don't have to make, oh, this is special because we need to give women or, you know, oppressed groups or oppressed issues a voice. So that's, I'd like to hear more how that's, how that's progressing. Yeah, well, we'll keep you updated. <laughs> um, it's, it's an issue that the Climate Change Centre here at ASPE is following closely. Dari, any closing thoughts from you? Uh, I was just like to mention that, I mean, I've talked a lot about civil society. I think there is a lot of work to be done within our own countries, our own, you know, the liberal democracies to not only give the women access to places of power, but also to strengthen the civil society that makes us so special I guess or like uh, our way of life so special and that includes you know online spaces and and ways to protect activists and 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 people mm. who put their face on these problems right. we're increasingly at risk increasingly to- at risk especially women and especially women women of color so I think it's really important to keep that Point of mind. So, in other words, is it there's a huge connection between surviving climate change, democracy, gender equality? They're all interconnected. <laughs> just before we go, I would just like to draw people's attention to Aspie's International Women's Day event, which is happening at five thirty on Wednesday. This Wednesday. The Honourable Maurice Payne, our Foreign Minister, will be there as well giving a keynote address and after that we'll be having a panel discussion about women, peace and security in Afghanistan and that will be including a very distinguished panel of guests. If you'd like to see who they are, please jump on ASPE's website. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this International Women's Day episode of Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another instalment soon. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe.